Today is the last Sunday of the year. The end of the year for us as Christians. As Christians, our year, the church year, starts next week. Next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. And for this entire year, our church, we've spent the entire year listening together for God's address through Luke's two-volume account of the origins of Christianity. Last year on the first Sunday of Advent, next Sunday a year ago, we started in Luke chapter 1. And we went through the gospel of Luke into the Easter season and then we started in the second volume Luke wrote. He wrote both of these books of the Bible, the book of Acts. And we've been in Acts since somewhere halfway through the Easter season. And now we've come to the end of this year-long journey as a church. Mike just read to us the last two chapters of Luke's two-volume account of the origins of Christianity. Acts chapter 27 and 28, it's an odd ending. Think how it started. Angels, messengers, um, John the Baptist, parents really old, way past childbearing years. These huge miraculous things, Mary, the Magnificat. Then, then think how the, the gospel of Luke climaxes. It all drives toward Jerusalem and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then it hands off to the book of Acts. It picks up right there and it picks up with the drama of Pentecost. And this thing is moving, moving, moving. And where does it end? It ends in a shipwreck and house arrest. Now this is an odd way for somebody who is utterly in control of their material and their craft. This is an odd way to tell the story. Why, why does Luke end his great account with a storm at sea and a shipwrecked and the hero of the story under house arrest with a more than likely death to follow? Well, to know the answer to that, you have to hold in your mind both volumes. You have to think back through the stories we've read over the last year. Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And from that moment in the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 13 until the end of the book, Paul is traveling. He's on the road constantly. He stops here and there for a year or two, but the whole time, if you were reading this as good literature, which is what you've got to learn how to do to read the Bible well, if you could feel the, the dynamics of this book, from that moment on, Paul is traveling. And listen to what we're told in chapter 19. Go, go a few pages to the right. Look at chapter 19, verse 21. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul, at some point in all of this journeying, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Jump over to chapter 20. He's telling his friends in Ephesus, bye, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And listen to what his friends tell him in Acts chapter 20, while he's journeying, he's going toward Jerusalem. Listen to what his friends tell him in verse 22. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me, this is not what his friends tell him, I'm sorry, this is what he tells his friends, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I know something bad is going to happen to me. But I'm surrendered to the will of God. I put my life in God's hands. Now drop down to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. They all know something bad is going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Now, as you're reading through Acts, if you could read it in one sitting, and I hope you do one day, you'd get this feeling in your bones of some dark cloud on the horizon. This stuff comes up over and over. I'm going to Jerusalem. Something bad's going to happen. And it just keeps happening. On his way to Jerusalem, he, he meets up with some friends in the city of Tyre. And listen to what they tell him in chapter 21, verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. This is bad news. Something bad is going to happen. And a few days later, he gets to the city of Caesarea. And a prophet comes to him. And listen in verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When Paul heard this, we and the people there urged him, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. But Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, like Paul had already said, God's will be done. Is this beginning to sound familiar? If you've read the book of Luke, isn't this a story that we hear in the gospel of Luke? In Luke's first gospel, we hear Jesus. It says of him in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Does anybody know this verse by heart? And he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the end of Luke's gospel, it's called, fancy language, the Lucane travel narrative. The bulk of Luke's gospel is a travel narrative. It's Luke 
setting his face toward Jerusalem. And it's Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem at 951. And he makes a lot of detours and he does a lot of things along the way. And he stays here a while and stays there a while. It's not a direct geographic journey, but it is a profound theological journey. And all along the way, he's warned something bad's going to happen. And he says, I surrender myself to God. I've got to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. So in Luke's gospel, the bulk of the gospel is structured like two hobbits headed to Mount Mordor. It's structured as a journey with an ominous ending. But Jesus along the way declares, I'm ready to lay my life down. I am completely abandoned to the will of God. The same thing happens in the bulk of Acts. The bulk of Acts is Paul's journey. And the majority of Luke, structured by this journey, is Jesus headed to Jerusalem. The majority of Acts is Paul headed toward Jerusalem. And once in Jerusalem, what happens to Jesus? In Luke's gospel, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, his own people reject him, arrest him without cause, imprison him. Exact same thing happens to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. Remember the riot? The Israelites reject him. Imprison him without cause. At the end of Jesus' trial in Luke's gospel, the Jewish authorities hand him over to the Roman authorities. Same thing happens to Paul. The Jewish authorities hand him over to the Roman authorities. Jesus in Luke's gospel is interrogated by the Roman governor and then handed back to the Jewish king, Herod Antipas. In the, in the book of Acts, Paul is interrogated by two Roman governors and then hauled before the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa. The parallels go on and on and on. You're supposed to read these two volumes next to each other. You're not a, you, you can't interpret one without the other. You can't know what's going on in one without having the lens of the other And then what happens to Jesus at the climactic moment of Luke's gospel when he's in Jerusalem and he's gone through all five trials. By the way, Paul has five trials. What happens to Jesus in the climactic moment? He's killed. Now, when you're reading Luke's gospel, you're you're supposed to remember, who 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 did Luke write his gospel to? Does anybody know? Theophilus. Who did Luke write the book of Acts to? Theophilus, the ideal reader has read the other book, knows it well. And so when these parallels start happening, what that does is you begin to download into your mind what's going on in the gospel as you're reading through Acts. And so all of the sudden, you're tracking, you're getting it. Oh, okay, what is supposed to happen to Paul in Jerusalem if the parallel stays true? Death. He's supposed to die. He's walking the path of Jesus. The words death have already been assigned to what's going to happen. And Paul, just like Jesus, is saying, I'm willing to do that. But instead, when the crucifixion is the climax of the gospel, Luke chapter 23, what is the climax of Acts? The shipwreck. The penultimate, the next to last chapter of the gospel is a detailed account of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
The next to last chapter of Acts is a detailed account, not of Paul's death, but of Paul's shipwreck. Now, what is Luke up to? Why did he craft these two volumes with so much parallel going on, and then all of a sudden, at the climactic moment, Paul is not, he doesn't die, he's shipwrecked. Why does he tease us like this? Why does he set us up in chapters 20 and 21 and 22 with all of this parallelism? Why does he provoke our attention to anticipate Paul's imminent demise? And then at the climactic moment, Paul doesn't die. Instead, we have the most detailed moment in the entire book all around a ship tacking under this island, tacking under that island, driving, for, sailing for 14 days here, letting off one anchor and then a second anchor and then a third. Why all of this detail at the climactic moment about a storm? What is Luke doing? Well, let me say, first of all, he knows what he's doing. He is a master literary artist. But second of all, don't ever forget, he's also a master theologian. And he has woven into the structure of Acts the deep theology of the cross. And he wants you to learn how to map the cross onto your life. You see, Luke is showing us, first of all, that the cross is unrepeatable. He's saying to us, no. Jesus' death wasn't an example that gets repeated in every generation. He's saying to us, you cannot reduce Jesus to an example. You can't take the death of Jesus and say, every generation needs a Martin Luther King Jr., somebody to willing, willing to die to push the thing forward. He is saying there is something unique and unrepeatable about the death of Jesus that is not ever equivalent with anything in your life. That at the death of Jesus, something unique occurred that never has to happen again. And it's this. Sins are forgiven. On the cross, 2,000 years ago, something happened that actually produced the forgiveness of sins once and for all. That's part of what he's doing. He's setting us up to expect another death so that he can foreground the unrepeatable uniqueness of Jesus Christ, our substitute, our atonement, died for us, paid for our sins, affected, broke open the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to repeat a death to get that. Jesus did something so that 2,000 years ago, as N.T. Wright wrote in a recent book, at 6 o'clock on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago, something changed, and it is never unchanged. Forgiveness occurred. It opened up. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. We don't reduce the crucifixion to merely an example. Jesus' death ushered in the forgiveness of your sins. You can know that. 
You can experience that freedom. You can rejoice in that, no matter how bad you've been. You can be forgiven. Utterly forgiven. That's one thing Luke is doing. He's insisting that, yes, we should look at Jesus and learn from him how to live our lives. We should not ever stop there, but we should not ever think that Jesus is merely an example. He is a once-for-all substitute. This is why we have great songs like When I Survey the Wonders Cross. This is why we have this great moment every Sunday where we remember his death and his resurrection. But Luke is doing something else. And to see this, you have to ask, why in Acts does the sea take the place of the cross? Why does a shipwreck replace the cross. It does it not only to show us what the cross is not, but it's doing something else. Why does the death of Jesus in Luke get paralleled with a storm in Acts? It's this, because for the Jews, the sea is very different than what it is for my wife. Many of you love the sea, the ocean, the water. My wife, I suspect that in the new heavens and the new earth, she's pulling for a beach house. She has more than once told me, I could just live at the beach, Aubrey. We go to the beach together. I get one of those little umbrella things, and I lay under it and cover up and put zinc on my nose and wear a hat and long sleeve shirt, and I read a book, and Janelle lays right outside of it, right in the sun, and she just flips back and forth, and, and we track the sun, and I can't, I've, I don't know how many times we've done this, but it's not a preacher story, it's true. So... But the Jews, they were more like me. They didn't really enjoy the sea. You know this. If you've ever read the Bible, let's just put together a few of the sea stories from the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the sea is primal chaos. It is the dark force which God defeats in order to bring creation. And then in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, the rising waters of primal chaos sweep back in, flood the entire earth, uncreated. And it's only by God's grace that Noah and his floating zoo are rescued. And then in Exodus chapter 14, the the Jewish people are running for their lives from Egypt. They're chased and suddenly they find themselves with Pharaoh at their back. And what in front of them? The Red Sea. And God has to defeat the sea and carve it in half to rescue his people and once more judge the world. It's the same story as Noah's flood repeated again. The threat of the sea and the rescue of grace. And we can't ever forget Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament for Jesus and Paul and all of the Jews at that time period. Daniel chapter 7, what comes up out of the sea? The four great monsters who are ravaging and destroying the people of God. You see, for the Jewish people, God made the sea, yes, Just as he had made everything in it, and it was his, and it did his bidding, and one day it will roar out its deep joy, along with the songs of the trees and the fields, when Yahweh comes again to make all things new. But at this moment, the sea is a dark room to a four-year-old 
to a thousand. To the Jewish people, it is terrifying. It is dark and strange. It is scary and threatening. It is the place of ultimate evil, the shadowy power that assaults our world and God's people like a giant tidal wave threatening those who live near the coast. So do you see the parallel of the shipwreck in the throes of a threatening sea in Acts chapter 27, how this parallels the cross in Luke 23. On the cross, all the strands of evil throughout human history attack Jesus. They draw together <coughs> and they crash down on Jesus. And here is Paul, equipped with the very breath of heaven in his lungs, working for the kingdom of God on earth, living as a person whom God has forgiven, carrying and embodying the good news that sins are forgiven, and he's going to where God is sending him. And what happens? Evil reaches up from the depths and grabs at him and claws at him and shatters down on him like a tidal wave, just like it did for Jesus. Luke is showing us, yes, the victory of the cross was decisive. Evil and death have been defeated, but evil and death are still here. And they are still deadly and they are angry. They are like a trapped, rabid animal in a corner. Luke is telling us there is such a thing as evil and there is a dimension to evil that cannot be explained by Freud saying it's all about sex or Marx saying it's all about money or Nietzsche saying it's all about power. No, there is a deeper force in this world than the dysfunction of your family. Paul said we are not dealing with flesh and blood. There is evil, real evil. It is this quasi personal force it is in this world and it will take you down it will reach out at you it will grab a hold of you it will assault you and it is just like a bully it it has no rhyme or reason who it picks on that's the storm I mean, you can just go through this chapter in Acts and the sea is a personified aggressor. The vital victory has been won and so the powers are not gone. They are angry. And they want to keep the world in their grip and they're fighting back. They're fighting all through the, God, all through the book of Acts. Evil is fighting the church. It's knocking them out. One place, one guy dies. Another guy gets beaten up. Another guy gets thrown in jail. Somebody else gets killed. All over, evil is ravaging the church. And the church is moving forward, carrying in its bosom this great message that it's a hollow enemy. It's defeated. We are not fighting against flesh and blood, it reaches out for you. Luke is woven into his narrative all of this as though to say from that day until this, until Jesus comes again to complete the work he began, this is what it's like to live for the king. So don't be surprised when evil Attacks you. 
Most of the world knows this. Those of us for whom a dentist appointment is the highlight of our suffering, we need to know this. Bishop Bandudu knows this. Jalila knows this. The church in China discovered this. We need to know this. That suffering is not to catch us by surprise. And the reason suffering happens is because evil is mad. Let me show you one other thing here. Look at Acts chapter 27. Notice with me the attack of the sea, the attack of evil rising up against Paul. I just the other day went through, I don't know if you can see my Bible, I highlighted in pink all the attack of evil. Look how this plays out in 27 verse 4. The winds were against us. Verse 7, we sailed slowly with difficulty. The wind did not allow us to go further. Verse 9, the voyage was now dangerous. Verse 10, the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Verse 13, the south wind blew gently, tricking us. So we went out to sea. And then verse 14, a tempestuous wind struck down on us. The ship was caught and could not face the wind. Verse 18, violently storm-tossed. Verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared. It was no small tempest that lay on us. Verse 27, we were driven across the Adriatic Sea. Verse 29, we ran on the rocks. Verse 41, we struck a reef. The bow stuck, immovable, stern, was broken up by the surf. Evil. Not in an abstract way, but concrete. Let me show you something else. And unfortunately, you can't see this in English. It's in Greek. In Acts chapter 27 and 28, we suddenly get the highest concentration of the word salvation anywhere in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27, verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved. By the time you get to Acts 27, in Luke's gospel and Acts, the word saved has already been filled with all the meaning of the cross. Saved. Verse 31. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food. It will save you. Your Bible might say it will strengthen you. It's the word saved. Same word. It will save you. Verse 43, the centurion wishing to save Paul. Verse 44, and so it was that all were saved. My Bible says brought safely to land. It's the word saved. Chapter 28, verse 1, we were saved. My Bible says we were brought safely. It's the word saved. And then again in verse 4, at the end, though he was saved from the sea. What is Luke doing? He's saying you go through this moment of shipwreck. And you discover salvation. You go through Acts chapter 27 with Paul through the shipwreck and you see salvation. 
It looked as though he wasn't going to be saved time and time again. He should have died. The ship should have died. The centurion, the soldiers should have killed the prisoners because if they escaped, they would be killed. They should have died of starvation, but right at the last minute, they have food over and over. They're on the brink of death, and then miraculous saving comes in again and again. It might have gone the other way. They might have drowned, but no, they're saved. Now, those of you who know the king, isn't that how it's been in your life? Isn't that what it's like to follow Jesus? Again and again, when you're actually engaged in following Jesus, you find that you're on the brink of destruction. And looking back, you got rescued. You were cast down, depressed, crushed. And you discover only in retrospect the deep truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that you were cast down but not destroyed. That you were depressed but not utterly forsaken. That dying you somehow lived. So I look back at the last eight years of my life and I remember six years ago having a breakdown and sitting in an almost comatose state in my garden, weeping uncontrollably, my wife gathering me up and taking me to our family's land and for six weeks being brought back to life. This is how it works. You look back and you see that temptation that might have completely destroyed you and somehow you were saved you look back and you see that event that was the end of your world and yet somehow you live what Luke is doing is he's saying salvation is not just this abstract spiritual pie in the sky kind of thing it's real and it really happens to us the grace of God really does carve the enemy in two And you can only see it looking back. And you can look back and you say, God saved me there. And he saved me there. And he saved me utterly there. Notice what happens right at the darkest moment in the storm. Verse 24. God said to Paul, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. In the darkest moment, God said, I'm going to save you. And so what does Paul do? He stands up and he has Eucharist. Look at chapter 27. It's the same day. Right before dawn. Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will, in Greek, save you. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took the bread and giving thanks to God, he gave it to them. Those are the Eucharistic words that happen throughout Acts. And throughout Luke, 
That is the formula at the end of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of Acts. Those words by this point have already become the formula. Who in the world stands up on a ship that is going down? Gives thanks to the Father for the bread. Breaks the bread. Goes through the ritual and serves it. This is unbelievable. It's what we're going to do this morning. Some of you right now are on a ship that is about to be shattered to pieces. And in just a moment, we're going to come to the table. Because as the psalm says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of all the dark forces that are clawing at you in your life. How do we survive the storms? Look to Paul. How do we survive the storms? We believe Jesus when he said, I got you. When he says, not a hair on your head. We believe him. And we go to church. And we go to the table. Why do we come to the table week after week after week? Because there's evil in this world. And if you come to the table, it will strengthen you. It will save you. That's what Jesus says in John's gospel. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life. And so week after week after week, in the midst of all the storms, whether it's cancer that is killing Alan Lamont, or or stress at work, or you can't bear the thought of being with your family around Thanksgiving because of all the pain and all this dysfunction and all the hurt, because Satan has really grabbed a hold and has ravaged your life. Stand up in faith and come to the table. Our job is not to be successful in this world. Our job is not to be great and powerful and shiny Christian world changers. Our job is to be people like Paul. Who stand up in storms. And confess Jesus Christ. And put all of our hope in him. And believe in our secure salvation. And the renewal of all things more than any act of evil that is ravaging us. We believe that evil is defeated. And yes, it still rages and it batters and it bruises. And in response to it, we proclaim the Lord's death. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death week after week? Because it's giving the finger to evil. It is saying to evil... You're a liar. You don't have the power you think you have. You can't do to me what you think you're doing. My God has won this. And so you find at the end of Acts, Paul right in the seat of Rome. We all want to know, what is Nero going to do to Rome? You know what Nero did to Christians? What is Nero going to That's the emperor at this moment. What's he going to do to Paul? You know what he's going to do to Paul. He's going to kill him. But there is Paul, totally physically destroyed by this moment in his life. 
but he has a whiff of victory in his nostrils. And he stands the last, the last thing that we hear in Acts chapter 29, chapter 28, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Evil is a liar. Let's tell it that. Let's come to the table, proclaim the Lord's death, and be strengthened for one more week out there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.